Welcome back, everyone, to my book review podcast, Unknown Friends. I am Rochelle Ferguson of Kitty Wayne Productions, and you are listening to episode number 19. Now, before we get started today, I do want to clarify something that I keep getting asked about, and I want to emphasize my answer. I'm continually asked whether my book reviews on this podcast are intended for listeners who have already read the book I'm discussing, or for listeners who have not read the book in question. The answer is, I intend to be speaking to both types of listeners. Now, ultimately, since this is a book review podcast, my primary audience are listeners who have not necessarily read the books I'm reviewing. I want to provide you with enough information and insight into each book to help you decide whether or not you want to take the time to read each work. However, I include background information about the author in question, as well as an analysis of the book's characters and themes, and those things, I hope, are also interesting and relevant for listeners who have already read the book. But if you are worried about hearing spoilers in my episodes, do not fear. I try to make it a priority not to give away a book's big surprises as I discuss it. Now, moving on to today's review. As I mentioned last week, I'm going to be discussing a rather unusual book, at least one totally unlike anything else I have reviewed so far on the Unknown Friends podcast. I'll be taking a look at a work of science fiction called The Space Merchants, which was written almost 70 years ago by a team of authors, Frederick Pohl and Cyril M. Kornbluth. Now, this is doubly a first for Unknown Friends. It's the first book I've reviewed that was co-authored, and it's also the first properly science fiction novel I reviewed. Never Let Me Go from episode 5 was quasi-science fiction, but I I wouldn't put it solidly in the sci-fi genre. So, who are these two writers? Let's start with Frederick Pohl, since he was the instigator of this novel. Pohl was born in 1919, and his family moved around the U.S. quite a lot when he was a kid, but they finally settled in Brooklyn, New York, when he was seven. In his teens, he got very into science fiction, both uh, reading and writing it, and he made a lot of friends through sci-fi fan clubs, essentially. The first time he ever got a piece of writing published was a poem he wrote that came out in a magazine when he was just 17. And then his first short story ever published was a work co-authored with none other than Cyril Kornbluth, and that was published in 1940 when Pohl was 20 years old. So these two men were friends from quite a young age, and over the next several years, they collaborated quite a bit, co-writing lots of short stories and several novels. And both of them co-wrote with numerous other sci-fi writers as well. It's intriguing to me just how much collaborative writing they each did. Um, And of course, they both authored solo works as well. But uh, back to Pohl's life. So he started getting published pretty early, and then in addition to his own writing, throughout his life, he worked as a literary agent for science fiction authors. 
including for a short time, Isaac Asimov, if you're familiar with him. And then Paul also served as the editor of various science fiction magazines. And in the meantime, of course, he kept writing sci-fi stories of his own, uh, sometimes publishing them in his own magazines. So Paul lived to be 93 years old, dying fairly recently in 2013. And over the course of his very long writing career, he had written and co-written scores of novels and short stories, as well as several works of nonfiction, including an autobiography. And he'd won many awards for his writing. I won't even try to elaborate all of those. I will just note, as far as his personal life goes, he was married five times, the first four all ending in divorce. And I really don't know what his religious background is, um, or whether he considered himself religious at all. From his writing, it's pretty clear he felt strongly about environmentalism, but that is about all I've got. Now, as to his friend and frequent collaborator, Cyril Kornbluth. Kornbluth was slightly younger than Paul. He was born in 1923, but he died far, far sooner than Paul. Kornbluth died quite young at age 34 from a sudden heart attack in 1958. He was a a brilliant and rather eccentric individual, and from his childhood, his talent was obvious. He was already writing stories by the age of seven. He graduated high school at age 13 and had a scholarship to attend college at 14. His first story was published in 1939 when he was just 16 years old, a year before his first collaborative short story with Paul came out. Now, both men found their writing careers interrupted early on by World War II, as you'll have guessed if you've considered the years I've been mentioning. In their early 20s, they both served in the European theater And it was actually there that Frederick Pohl first had the spark of an idea that eventually led to the novel The Space Merchants. So while Pohl was stationed in Italy near the end of World War II, he learned that his mother had passed away. And perhaps feeling nostalgic for home, he started writing a story set in New York where he'd grown up. He focused the story on the New York advertising industry because he thought that would be interesting. Well, he wrote his novel, and after the war, he reread it and decided he didn't know enough about advertising to write well about it. So his solution was, of course, get a job in the advertising industry. And that's what he did. He became a copywriter and found that he really enjoyed the work so much so that he almost forgot about his novel until 1950, when he pulled it back out, reread it again, decided it was terrible, and burned it. But it seems the idea wouldn't quite let him go. About a year later, he started afresh with um, a new science fiction story focusing on advertising, and this time he made some real headway. He wrote what eventually became about the first third of the space merchants, and then his old friend Cyril Kornbluth came to talk to him one day, and long story short, Kornbluth offered to take a look at what Pohl had written so far and collaborate on the story. 
So Kornbluth wrote essentially the middle third of the novel, and then the two men got together again, drafted the last third or so, and finally Pohl went through and edited the whole manuscript, and their joint novel was complete. Soon afterward, when Pohl was 32 years old and Kornbluth was 29, their book was published serially in 1952 in the magazine Galaxy Science Fiction. And at that time, it was published under the title Gravy Planet. (laughs) I think it was the right choice to rename it The Space Merchants uh, when it was then published as a standalone book the next year in May of 53. And the rest is history. The story was well-received, and I think critics say that, if anything, it improves with time, as we can see some of its predictions, its insights about the future gradually come true. So, what is this novel all about? I've said it focuses on the advertising industry. It is a dystopian novel, somewhat in the vein of Brave New World or 1984, but with quite its own take on what the future might look like. Um, And it's not nearly as dark as either of those dystopians. The Space Merchants is a satirical look at consumerism and the power of advertising to influence what we think and do. Uh, But its plot is kind of a wild ride, so I'll give you a quick overview first uh, without spoiling anything. Our hero is one Mitch Courtenay, a high-ranking copywriter in the Fowler Shockin Advertising Agency. He is on top of the world. He's got a great job he's really good at, which essentially is controlling people's buying habits by means of skillfully crafted appeals, sometimes subliminal, to human desire and instinct. And in Mitch's world, which is a a future Earth, 22nd century, advertising agencies more or less hold sway over the entire globe uh, in tandem with huge corporations. So the executives at Fowler Shock and Associates are some of the wealthiest and most respected people in the world. So Mitch really has it good. And right from the start of the book, he has a breakthrough. He's assigned Project Venus, a huge ad campaign intended to attract colonists to the planet Venus, which has been judged uh, suitable, barely, for human habitation. One man has landed on Venus and returned safely, and so those in power say it's time to convince some people to colonize the planet. Something that becomes more and more clear as the novel progresses is that this future Earth is overpopulated, extremely low on natural resources, and so it's become urgent to come up with an answer to these problems. So Mitch Courtenay gets Project Venus, He doesn't really think about what it means too much, but his job is to make the inhospitable planet Venus sound appealing to consumers. And so this is what he sets out to do. Well, he makes some progress and hits some roadblocks, and then things kind of explode. Someone attempts to assassinate him, and then he gets shanghaied, and basically his world shatters. And he ends up going places 
and learning things he had never even dreamed of. I just ended that sentence with a preposition, didn't I? Ah, oh well. We're all human, right? So, about the plot. It made so much sense to me and also amused me when I learned how the writing was broken down between Frederick Pohl and Cyril Kornbluth, because uh, my experience reading the book closely mirrored that breakdown. Roughly a third of the way into the book, which is where Kornbluth took over for a while, there is a major twist and a drastic shift in the direction of the plot, which works, I think, but I certainly did not see it coming. And then after that big plot twist, you figure out this sort of new path Mitch has to take for a while, and you go with it, and it's it's understandable and intriguing. But then roughly the last third of the novel gets confusing. Honestly, I found the climax pretty hard to follow. There's a lot of different elements all trying to work together, and they they make it hard for the story to remain intelligible and surprising. So it's probably a bit harsh to say the story disintegrates in the last third or so of the book, but it definitely gets very complicated and a little contorted. It sort of all makes sense in the end, but I thought it felt pretty strained. And, of course, that all makes perfect sense when you consider that for the last portion of the book, Paul and Kornbluth were trying to write together, and they were trying to reconcile their two very different contributions to the story. So, ultimately, what I'd say is the plot... Um, the actual chain of events and the, the logic of how each event and character is connected is weak. But he- here's what is strong about the novel. The world building. This is a novel of ideas more than a cohesive story about a character's growth. And the ideas are fascinating. Like I already mentioned, this work is heavily satirical Pohl and Kornbluth build their imaginary future world in a way that exaggerates and exposes problems they could see developing in the real world. And that's what makes this novel especially interesting now, 70 years later, because the story is somewhat prophetic. We see some of the author's Um, exaggerations becoming less and less of exaggerations in our world as their predictions become realized. More than anything else, they're insightful about the power of advertising and media to change our minds and behaviors. And that power comes from a scary combination of things. First of all, Ads work because they appeal to our feelings and appetites much more than our our logic or reason. There's actually a line in the novel, and this shows you Poland Kornbluth's uh, satire at work. It says this, Increase of population was always good news to us. More people, more sales. Decrease of IQ was always good news to us. Less brains, more sales. Ouch. Uh, Mitch also says at one point, uh, criticizing someone for trying to appeal to reason in an argument, he says, you can't trust reason. We threw it out of the ad profession long ago and have never missed it. Which 
is a little bit funny, but also disturbingly true. But not only do ads get their power from appeals to emotion and desire, they're also powerful when they're promoting products that are addictive. And I don't mean like alcohol or or cocaine or something, but say junk food. There's this one short passage in the novel that starkly outlines the craving cycle that Mitch's ad agency promotes. So Mitch is describing uh, the kind of consumer we love. And he says, and by the way, there are several uh, brand names in this quotation. Star is a cigarette brand name, things like that. I think I think you'll understand it when I read the quotation. He says, think about smoking, think about stars, light a star. Light a star, think about Popsy, get a squirt. Get a squirt, think about crunchies, buy a box. Buy a box, think about smoking, light a star. And on and on it goes. So some of these products being promoted might not, you know, technically have an addictive substance in them, but the advertising industry is smart and it knows how to encourage these craving cycles. Ads, well, and not just standalone ads, but media in general, images, films, music, anything, these train consumers over time. They train our appetites and even our beliefs about what is desirable in life, from big things down to tiny things like what we want to eat for a snack. And that's scary. And then when on top of that, as the Space Merchants says explicitly, you do have many products with literally addictive elements, then consumers are in an extremely vulnerable position. And that's the bottom line that Pole and Kornbluth reveal in their book. Media can control our thoughts and behaviors with our consent. Something like the dystopian novel 1984 is scary because of its uh, thought police and torture used to brainwash people and, and force them to believe or desire certain things. But the space merchants is frightening because thought police and torture are completely unnecessary. Media does the trick. And the consumers don't even know to put up a fight because they don't recognize that thought control is happening. And now, in 2020, we see the power, the unbelievable power of media and advertising to do this very thing and shape people's opinions and behaviors without us even realizing what's going on. So that's the revelation of this novel, its insight and while the plot and characters I don't think are terribly strong, the way Pole and Kornbluth have formed their imaginary world is what makes the story so powerful. They've, they've imagined the future meticulously. You see how their ideas play out in every aspect of life, from the food to transportation, currency, occupations, geography, uh, politics, Uh, marriage and family, just on and on. The authors are so thorough that the world of this novel is believable, and because of that, it's disturbing, and it hopefully motivates us to analyze ourselves and how our very minds and hearts 
can be molded by everything from ads on billboards to, you know, movies, TV, social media, and just the list goes on. So clearly I recommend this book for its far-sightedness and its thoughtful and sometimes funny satire of our culture's invisible thought control. That said, its plot does get confusing, its characters aren't super well-developed, and I mean, I do not agree with all aspects of the worldview presented. Um, Also, just a warning, there is some strong language, not a ton, um, and certainly not as, as foul as it could be. But Pohl and Kornbluth's exposure of how media controls our minds is shrewd and visionary. So if you've enjoyed this book review, please remember to subscribe to the podcast and write a quick review to share what you enjoyed about my discussion or what could be improved about the episode. I value your input, both positive and negative. Thanks for your time, and I hope you'll join me again next week for my discussion of one of my longtime favorite novels. We will be dramatically switching gears from science fiction to the Regency era, taking a look at Jane Austen's novel Sense and Sensibility. If you remember, I had my sister as a guest on the podcast a couple months ago when we discussed Austen's novel Persuasion uh, back in episode 7, and now for my 20th episode, wow, that's hard to believe, um, I'm returning to Austen to discuss another of her classics. So tune in again next Wednesday for episode 20, and again, thank you so much for listening.